Hi guys, so something absolutely different today. So I was really honoured to be invited on The Talent Equation by Stuart Armstrong, uh, a guy that's influenced and supported so many people uh, throughout the years in their, in their coaching journeys. Um, so invited me on to talk about deception and deceptive skills and how we can actually uh, help our boxers be more tuned into the information um, and how to deceive people and send the wrong signals um, so we can uh, be better defensively and offensively. Um, so a really good discussion around some sort of practice designs um, and how we can, um, yeah, how we can create that those practices and environments so we can actually get people better at triggering, fainting, uh, drawing, things like that. So yeah, really, really interesting. And he gave some, me some, some, some fantastic opinions from, uh, I suppose, more of an objective point of view. So um, here it is, uh, the talent equation with Stuart Armstrong. Cheers, guys. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by, a, a, as I always, I seem to be saying this every single time, uh, a long overdue guest, um, Adam Hanover from uh, England Boxing, the Box Gathering, which is a fantastic group of committed learners that they've brought together. I think you describe it as a, as a campfire, is that correct? Yeah, that's kind of one of the things we offer a campfire. We all sit around the campfire, you know, with the uh, with the sticks and the marshmallows, and, and we try and put the, the coaching and boxing worlds to rights. And we often don't hit that, and we're, we're getting arguments and fights, but it's all good stuff. Excellent. Well, at least it's all done virtually, so there's actual no physicality <laughs> at the moment. But when you guys get face to face, you're in real trouble. Listen, um, I've jumped straight into it as usual. Um, Adam, really, really welcome to have you on here. Um, and I've jumped straight into talking about your involvement with all things pugilistic. But um, tell us a little bit about the, your, your story. OK, right. So um, well, originally I was a half decent footballer, I'd like to say. I grew up in a little village called Fenstanton in Cambridgeshire. And um, then I came down to university at um, I didn't get my apprenticeship at Cambridge United, the buggers. Um, and uh, end up coming down to university instead and did a sports science degree at Brighton University, like I said, but uh, in Eastbourne. Um, at Eastbourne, I, I met a friend called Casey Knackman, who was uh, currently boxing for Scotland, and uh, he was training for a, for a bout, and I watched him train. I thought, this is fantastic. There wasn't much going around where I was growing up in terms of boxing. I don't think there was anything. Um, so I loved it, and I started training with him, and... Um, he would take me on the pads. We'd go out on there, you know, anytime we had a break at university, which is, you know, pretty much every time at university, you've got a lot of time on your hands. Um, and just fell in love with the sport. It was one of those things where um, every second of the day, you see yourself a reflection in a mirror or in a car window and you start shadow boxing or as a, as a little bush, you start beating the bush up and people look at you strange and call the police on you and stuff like that. But um, I just kind of fell in love with the sport. Um, ended up having uh, 45 bouts over 10 years uh, for Hastings West Hill under my coach, uh, Dave Bishop. Um, but as I was doing that, I suppose a bit of a, maybe a same journey for many, but um, I started coaching at the same time. So I, I developed the club at the University of Brighton uh, with um, with Casey Nackman and a friend called Seamus Kelly. Um, and... It was quite strange. So one minute I'm actually kind of developing myself for the performance side, but I'm also coaching a lot of uh, beginner students as well. So I think my sort of journey at the start was kind of unique and helped in some ways, but I suppose we can talk about that a little bit later. Then in 2010, um, back then it was called the ACE. ACE came up at Greater Brighton Metropolitan College. Um, 
now called yeah, like I say, now called Dice Diploma in Sport and Excellence. So I, I managed to get that role, and I I'd actually just turned into a level two coach about a week before, and it was a requirement to be a level two coach. So that's developing sixteen to eighteen young aspiring boxers uh, whilst uh, delivering while they they gain uh, qualifications, so they gain a level three NCFE in sport, and they also um, get the diploma in sport and excellence um, through me. So I'm kind of delivering a qualification. Uh, sports science, etc., through the sport of boxing. Um, so I'm quite a lucky man, Stu, to be fair. So it's my passion, it's my hobby, but people have decided to pay me for it as well. So uh, happy days on that count. Uh, also, I managed to become an England Pathway coach. I've um, been doing that for, oh, I'm not sure now, six, seven years, something like that, and do some coach education for England boxing as well. So I deliver level ones and twos, um, and have applied for um, the new reformed revamped level three um and then just a, a few little finishes here before everyone gets completely and utterly bored um i did start a, a podcast called the boxing coaches podcast which was me deciding to kind of just get things a little bit off my chest because i know you love a rant um so i thought well you know i'll jump on that rant bus as well um and started talking about you know some of the great things we do in, in the boxing uh, realms but some of the things I think that we miss out on opportunities that we miss out on and then finally it kind of brought us to the box gathering which obviously we invited you on um course probably near and near a year now I said nine months ago I've lost all track of time um where myself and my colleague Ivan Cobb um just invite as many different coaches on and we just talk um or like I say around a campfire around a zoom call um, we invite certain guests on you know who might be famous people like um you know, famous boxing coaches, Richie Woodall, Adam Booth, Joe Gallagher. And then we have the performance side, people like jo uh, Josh Boatsy. We even had Chuck Weppner, who was the uh, the real Rocky, came on. And then we have academics um, or pracademics and people like that, that uh, to coin a, a phrase that you use, Damien Hughes, JP Nurban, yourself, uh, John O'Sullivan have all come on. And so we just kind of give them that whole holistic picture of how we can develop the sport. And um, it's been a really exciting journey. And all, all roads lead to, to here and, and your man cave in the background. <laughs> yeah, my man cave where I just had to mute because I just we've just been through a hailstorm. I can hardly hear you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's been genuinely four seasons in one day today. It's been an interesting day here in uh, in, in rural Oxfordshire. Um, right. Well, I mean, that is a that is some rap sheet, so to speak, uh, that you've got there. Um I mean, I get where to start. I mean, one of the things I'd be really interested in is obviously you and I have um, connected, and you were kind enough to invite me on the um, to come and talk at the um, at the gathering. Um, and I know that you, you share a, a passion for sort of all things ecological, constraints led, and all those sorts of things, and are quite keen to. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Expose the boxing community, the coaching community to these sorts of approaches and allow a little bit of exploration beyond the tried and tested. See if there's new ways that that could be embraced that might enhance the the, the development of boxers in, in certainly in England. Um, talk to me a little bit about that journey and how that's going and all that sort of stuff. Okay, so yeah, exactly. It's kind of um, expose, introduce them to it. I mean, there are lots of different ways to skin a cat. And um, as a as a performer, as a boxer myself, I was I was half decent. I'd like to say I had forty five bouts. I won half. I lost half. You know, that's that's the way it went. And um, but as I went up the ladder, the more and more that I practiced, the more and more I trained, 
um, the more and more I kind of found there was a gap. And I was very dedicated. You know, I was very proud of myself in terms of how dedicated. I always do my runs. I'd, I'd always train. I never miss a session. I put 110% in that kind of thing. But no matter how much I applied myself, there just seemed to be something missing. So I'd, I'd compete and everything that I did in training um, seemed, you know, seems to be working in training, but it wouldn't translate into the ring. Um, and after that, afterwards, I feel I'm just pulling my hair out as to why isn't this not working? Why is this not transferring? Why am I not getting the results when I've been trying my absolute best and I had a fantastic coach and, um, you know, good sparring partners, etc. So it's one of those things that kind of led me into looking a bit deeper, you know, and one day, um, I had kind of two epiphany moments. One was um, Dice went out, we usually go out to Tenerife, you know, COVID uh, aside, and we have a, a camp out of there. And the coaches were sitting around a, a coffee table just having a, you know, having a drink and, and putting the world to the rights as we do. And uh, one of the coaches said to me, he's called Steve Cranston, he does the same job as me in Gateshead, he said to me, Adam, you're, you're, um, I was speaking to your boxers today, and... Um, they like you, they, they love you, they think the world of you, they think you're a great coach. So I'm sitting there going, great, you know, puff my chest out a little bit over my, uh, my, my, uh, my coffee. And he said, but, and the but came up, so I raised my eyebrows and he said, but they're scared of you. I go, what do you mean they're scared of me? He says, they don't feel like they could talk to you because um, you would probably, you know, it'd be a bit of a rebuttal in there somewhere or you would probably call them soft or something like that. And um, I dug a little bit deep into what Steve was saying. But as, as I got the information out of me and the guys continued talking, I just kind of sat there in the corner and I felt my first thought I felt was shame. And I felt like everything he was telling me was like the complete opposite of actually who I am. And I was putting in my coaching space, I was putting on a bit of a front, you know, like I was on the boxing coach and I know everything, you know, stage and stage, all these, all these things that you've heard a million times. Um, and I just felt utter shame. And a little while later, I decided I wanted to do something about that. And so I started communicating well, et cetera, et cetera, and being a bit more intentional about that. And I was trying to change my spots a little bit. But, um, you know, and not to blow too much sunshine up your backside, Stu, um, I did, suddenly I got a text come through from my boss, John Wise, at the time, who was the head of ACE. Um, and it was, it was war and drills. So, yeah, we don't go too much into that. But it was war and drills. And, and everything just resonated with me straight away. And it was like... Those were the questions I was asking myself the moment I come out the ring and lost to someone I thought I shouldn't have lost to. I should have been. I've been preparing for that guy. Everything I did was right. And then, then I realized everything was unopposed. Everything was drill-based. There was nothing in, really in there that was about reading. There was nothing in there that was about perception action. And all these huge things, which are still, which are still very much absent from a lot of boxing, coaching, and education we do today. It was missing. And I realized that from that point on, wow, I wish I was born 10 years later. So that's kind of where I've got with it. And, and it just made me jump down every kind of rabbit hole there is in the world. And, I, you know, I've just turned into a podcast junkie. I, you know, I read now. I even try to read um, things like journals, which um, usually is just like kryptonite to me. You know, as soon as they start saying things like student t-test and chi squared i usually just puke on the page but um, i'm starting to try and to educate myself in all these different ways now and i think the best part about it Stu, is i find it exciting I, I actually enjoy it usually learning for me was a bit of a task and a chore but now i'm really enjoying it so um yeah that, that's where i'm at now and um again all roads lead to this conversation i suppose
That uh, war on drills episode, I've <laughs> got a lot to answer for, hasn't it? <laughs> you have, yeah. <laughs> you, had, you had peace talks. I know you had peace talks. Whether they worked or not, I don't think so. Uh, well, yeah, that was an attempt at some sort of re- reconciliation. Made no, no, had no impact whatsoever. May as well not have bothered. Um, yeah, interesting. Well, okay, so, so as a performer yourself, you know, you almost had this itch that you couldn't scratch around you know why am I not why was I not able to do this and then you recognize some aspects of your training as being kind of impoverished I think which is a phrase that um, Graham McDowell used when he came on the show while the golf coach came on the show a few few episodes back now um, said impoverished practice environments and and so then would you say though that that is pretty commonplace or are the better boxers do they have a different trajectory do they have a different experience which is something that then gives them that different advantage what how does it how does it manifest i think if you were to i mean i don't want to tie everyone with the same brush and i, and I, I really don't want to sound like i'm very i'm very much anti what's going on because i'm not at all there are some amazing coaches out there who people just walk through walls through and and, and they just perform they could they just give them gold dust and the boxers perform it's amazing but i just feel like if you were to walk into a sample of 10, 20 boxing gyms around the country, they're all going to be doing the same thing, um, which is you, you skip to warm up. So as you're bouncing up and down on the spot, yes, there is plyometric stuff. There's, there is a little bit of some similarity um, to how you'd move. But for me, the brain switched off straight away. So actually there's no thought process going on. There's no progression really. And again, this is not for every gym, but, I think your average gym might be like that. Mine used to be. Um, and then you might go and hit the bags for, I don't know, five, six, ten rounds. Um, and as you're hitting that bag, all the habits start creeping in. Nothing's coming back yet. So we're missing those opportunities to, to do that, to do the readings. So the whole perception action part comes out of it. Um, the boxers don't move the feet anymore. Um, they start throwing five or six shots and thinking, yeah, well, that landed. Well, actually, if you were to throw two shots at me, like if you throw two shots at me now, still, I want to hit you back and, and vice versa. You know, I'll, I'll try and hit you with two shots. You want to hit me back. So, you know, there, there really wasn't that kind of specificity there uh, for me. You know, the practice design was just very much um, very, very sterile, far removed um, from the sport as possible. Um, and, and then, of course, you've got things like pads. I and mean, pads are one of those things where, uh, you know, I'm sure we can delve into that a little bit later, but pads are one of those things where every single boxer wants to do pads. I used to love pads. It, there's nothing more um, engaging than pad work. But with pad work, there's what tends to happen is 90% of it is you throwing and 10% of it is maybe a shot that comes back at you and it's probably just a jab. So again, we're missing those, those reading opportunities there. And, and, and although a lot of people say it's very close to actually competition, pad work's very close and representative. No, no, it's not. Um, and then of course, the final one that you've got is, is um, and the best one of all is shadow boxing. And people really preach about your shadow boxing has got to be this, that and the other. And, and you've got to have really good imagery and visualization, which I agree, there does need to be that in there, but <laughs> your shadow boxing, there's nothing coming back at you. So again, you throw 10 shots and um, nothing lands. So um, defensively, you're switching off. There's actually, everything is about the action part of that feedback loop. There's no, there's no perception part in there. Um, and you just, you just learn to switch off and, and, and become an autopilot boxer 
with with no context to what you're doing. So it's it's a bit sort of, when you look at it that way, it's a bit sort of soul destroying in a way. So um, I just think there's a lot of um, tradition that we need to challenge. Mm. And I'm going to play devil's advocate against myself now because it's just um, I'm intrigued by this. So it strikes me that <clears throat> those traditional methods are part and parcel of boxing of the boxing experience. It feels to me like a boxing experience. I've never boxed, but it feels to me that if I was to, or if anybody was to, that the boxing experience has to have some element of, partly because it's almost like folklore. So whilst I'm not, whilst I've never boxed, I absolutely, um, I'm just fascinated by and massively enjoy a lot of martial arts for that matter, but, you know, boxing in particular, I mean, you know, there's just something about the contest. There's some sort of purity to it that I just find so interesting. And also there's that whole element of the, um, not only the skill, and, and there is a very obvious kind of skill di dimension to that, but also the fact that the skill has to be married with, you know, bravery and heart and, all those sorts of dimensions, you know, which really take you into parts of the sort of human psyche, human condition that are that not many other sports can kind of take you to. They don't have the same level. So there's something very, very interesting about that whole dynamic. And I've always been enormously intrigued by it. Really love talking to people who who work in this space. But it, it strikes me that there are some cultural norms. So this is what um, James Vaughan talks about, where they talk about like, you know, not only is it about the constraints that you might adopt in practice, but also the sort of socio-cultural dimensions of an activity and 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 why that's important. And, you know, I've come to really understand through the being fortunate enough to sort of spend a bit of time, you know, working with the guys at England Boxing, looking at, you know, some doing some research around the role coaches play in, say, communities. And, you know, boxing plays a really important role. I think with, you know, and you know this probably as well as I do, with kids who might otherwise end up in some pretty terrible ex life experiences and boxing takes them into an entirely different realm of personality and they move into a, you know, a different life, make a lot of different life choices. There's a lot of very powerful things boxing does over and above the actual sport itself. But it strikes me that the diligence required to do what is often quite mundane you know, the skipping, the hitting the bad, the shadow boxing on all of this sort of stuff. You know, they're quite repetitive and things like that. But that's maybe part of it. It's kind of like an earning your stripes thing. W would you say that's true? Am I or am I completely, you know, kind of barking up the wrong tree here? Um, I think there's an element of learning how to train, how to train. Yeah, properly. yeah. So um, let's be honest, you know, boxing is a sport where you might have in some gyms, you might have 50 kids in there and three coaches or volunteers. Yeah. So your ratios are, are, are massively kind of um, diluted, you know, and spread really thin across your toast. Um, so um, I can, for example, say, right, okay, you two, you two aspiring, you two aspiring, you two aspiring, or I could pair everyone up. But the, the amount of feedback that can be given um, is, is very, very, very low. So there has to be that element of self-management, self-regulation, self-awareness, I think, that the boxers have to go through. And yeah, it, you know, the D word might have to come into that slightly because mm -hmm. at least you're doing something where they are, there is a, 
a decent level of challenge for them. Is the representative levels high? Maybe not, but there is a little bit there. Um, and, and the boxers can, you know, you give them tools to actually be very self-aware and, and reflect on what they're doing. So there is an element of, of getting those stripes. Yeah, I do believe. And, and of course, if you go on social media, you always see the, the great kind of um, posters that come up on, on Instagram and whatnot about, uh, you know, all, all these amazing proverbs. It seems like boxing has the best proverbs in the world. You know, these kind of things that you see above the doors, you walk into a gym, yeah. you know, the train, you know, train hard, fight easy, all these kind of great things. And, you know, there's, there's of course, there's always elements of truth behind these uh, these proverbs. Um, but I just kind of think that, um, yes, I, I kind of do, if you're a person that begs and begs for one-to-one -one attention, you're not going to get on very well on this sport because the logistics just say you can't. So you need to self-manage. But then you ask yourself that question, Stu, is, well, actually, I'm the one in the ring. So perhaps our, our uh, practices need to be actually quite, self-dependent you're in you're very sort of independent you know there needs to be that interdependency between the box as well but i think also if they're not independent they're not going to thrive because a lot of the time that they just have to maximize that time they're not with with the coach so i, I agree in that in, in terms of skill acquisition there's that as well but there yeah you, you kind of have that social cultural kind of expectation listen mate yeah you need to you need to do x amount you need to know how to skip if you've got to be a boxer you need to know how to put your wraps on. You need to know how to scowl at people. And of course, you need to know how to put something on Instagram and look well hard. <laughs> got, so yes, there is an element of paying dues. And I think I think people, if they feel the part and they look the part, then they are going to be the part. So there is an element of that as well, Still, I think. Yeah, and, and I, <clears throat> it struck me as well that there's a almost like a, a discipline component. You know, it's almost like showing that <clears throat> you've got what it takes to be a boxer you know to you almost like earn the right to take the ring sort of i know that sounds but i mean i could be wrong about that but i, I know other i know there are other sort of um not not even just not even not even martial arts but but certain sports where you have to earn the right to compete so to speak you know to, to play the game so to speak and i'm wondering whether that's a deliberate component as well I think there is an element of a, an apprenticeship as yeah. such that, that you have to sort of go through. Um, I think a lot of coaches, and you know, and I do as well, they have this kind of romantic notion that you do need to earn your stripes. And, you know, the, here's the one that I've always argued about. Boxing's in the blood. Boxing's in the blood. <sighs> do you know what I mean? You know, and of course, we don't go down the whole kind of nature versus nurture sort of thing on that. But it, no, it's it's not. There are elements of, uh, of um, you know, your DNA that may make you slightly aggressive than someone else, but it's it's not, you know. So I think we've just got to be a little bit more focused on um, the quality of what is delivered when we actually go into the gym. But yes, also know that if you are, if you want my attention or another coach's attention, you must pay your dues. Um, and you know that's just a cultural thing, and I, I think that that is kind of important in a way. You can't be, you know, excuse my French, Billy Big Bollocks, and go in there and just go right, um, coach, tell me out the box. Well, no, you need to tell me. You know, you, you can be disciplined, arrive on time, communicate well with people, um, give feedback to other people, um, you know, be gracious, keep the gym tidy. All these little things, you know, the soft skills, maybe you want to call them. If you can't do those, and we're not going to give you the hard skills. Mm -hmm. I like it. So. I guess your your mission contention, um, you know, being interested in this space is to say that you're not 
you're not necessarily saying, look, we need, we need to throw all of that out. What you're saying is we need to sort of embrace some of these alternative concepts and actually then utilize what's already there and either enhance it or just make sure that there's an appropriate balancing between stuff that might be done that's unopposed and then other stuff that might be done more opposed and that kind of thing. Is that generally what you're trying to sort of suggest? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I don't want to be one of those guys. No, that's rubbish. That's rubbish. Never do that again. Because there's, you know, everything has, has its place. You know, every tool is, is there for a reason. I think it's just a, an element of actually understanding the underpinning reasons. You know, is that sort of raison d'etre side of the thing, isn't it? Okay, and a lot of people say now, which is starting to break through in the box, and which is great, it says if you can't explain why you're doing something, then perhaps you shouldn't be doing it. So, you know, if you can't explain why shadow boxing is good without saying, well, it's good in it, then we shouldn't, then perhaps we shouldn't be doing it. So, um, it's just like anything if, if you have that understanding of what you're doing, then you'll have that motivation. Um, if you have that motivation, then you're more likely to succeed, you know, adhere to the exercise. Um, so I think understanding, you know, the whole Simon Sinek stuff, you know, the why is a really important part uh, for the boxers as well, not just for the coaches. Ultimately, it starts with the coaches. But if um, I think a lot of, you know, millennials or what you want to call it now, they do want to know why they're hitting the bag, why they're shadow boxing, why they're skipping. And if you can't articulate that, then they're just not going to adhere to it. So I think we need to move with the times a little bit more and just understand those principles. But there are just there are a lot of principles out there still at the moment. I think we're a little bit, we just have an idea about, but we don't really know how it kind of influences our practice design, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think um, like a, a lot of people, what often people misunderstand with some of this is that um, the vast majority of the, what you might call unopposed activities, just need to be categorized differently. The, the part of the problem is I think people do them with the assumption that they are somehow gonna aggregate up into skilled performance. But the reality is they're actually just physical training things. They're just, if, if you actually just were to say, look, I'm doing this because it's a physiological beneficial thing to do. Shadow boxing, actually it's just movement. We're just, we're just learning to move. All right. Okay, fine. Uh, skipping. Yeah. It's just about, it's about building a physiological engine. It's actually quite taxing. Uh, you know, it's learning to be on your toes all the time. It's about moving in a certain way. Okay. Interesting. Lots of different ways of doing that, but that one in itself, fine. That's got a rationale, you know, it's probably rationale for bag work, rationale for pad work and all these different things, but mostly because in my view, they are predominantly physical in nature. And if you were to say that they're physical in nature, then fine, that's good. It's part of the physical training mix. The problem is people often do them suggesting that they're, they're a means of deriving or developing skill. They're not. They are, they're, they're about developing movement. So it's a physiological thing, but it's also, you know, a kind of technique thing, which again is sort of predominantly biomechanical. So you're combining phys physical training with biomechanical movement and the assumption being that that translates into skill. No, that's, that, that translates into mo movement capability. Skill is something else. And so once you understand the definition that, you know, or a redefinition of skill, because people often misappropriate technique with skill. So they assume that if you learn a movement pattern and then you repeat the movement pattern and you do the movement pattern under physiological load, that that translates into skill. But what we know is that there's actually a valuable, there's a valuable element of skill, which is the information that's present in the environment that defines your action. And so of course, now we've got to think about becoming a skillful performer in an entirely different way. So there's an interesting question that's just been rattling around in my brain as you were talking earlier on. What 
in your to your knowledge differentiates the great fighters or the better fighters from those who maybe say let's perform you know in a in a uh, you know or maybe don't quite progress as far well, well a lot of things i suppose but there there are a million things i mean you know you've got to have courage and heart and without going, you know, and, and of course you have to have the engine, you have to have the physiological capabilities, 12 rounds, you know, or even Olympic boxer doing three, three minutes, that might as well be running a marathon in terms of how tough that feels. It's, it's, it's horribly hard. But to answer your question, if I was to give one specific answer, um, it is the best boxers in the world are the ones who, who can read, who can work you out. If you can see that the bout is actually changing, adapting and evolving as to what's happening in front of them. They're the best boxers. So one of my favorites at the moment is Vasil Lomachenko. Absolutely. I mean, he got beat about a year ago, but you know, every boxer gets beat. But his ability to adapt, to attune to that information, he will see something and he can adapt to it. And he'll look a different boxer every 30 seconds. One minute he'll be stomping all over you like Mike Tyson. The next minute he'll be picking you off and counterpunching you. Um, he's just he's just brilliant. But we use him a lot to actually um, talk about reading and perception action. So one of the videos that I showed a lot to the dice boxes is, is actually what he's doing when he's just sitting at the edge of the range. He's just there. He's, he's, he's potting his poking. He's, he's triggering people. We can talk about what that, all that means later. But he's just on that little edge of, edge of the area. He's doing like a little stakeout. So he'll do a little movement or an action just to see what the reply looks like. Ah, he's loading up with his backhand when I do that. And you can just see him gaining this information all the way through the round and then it's like okay i know what this kid's like and then he just he just exposes them and just have to have that patience to be able to watch and study what's going on is brilliant now i can imagine people when this goes out you probably have a lot of coaches saying well you, you haven't got enough time to do that in amateur boxing because it might be three twos or three threes so you have to you have to kind of do it under pressure so you have to layer that pressure on and do it quite quickly you can't give away a minute doing it but it needs to be interspersed so you might have a quick look here bang bang respond have another quick look respond do you see what i mean so I, th I think people like that i mean my favorite is sugar ray leonard i used to love how he used to do it he used to counter punch people attack people give angles punches and bunches he had the whole the whole the whole kit and caboodle for me but if we can teach boxers and be very intentional about how we set out our practice design how we actually attune them to that information that's actually in the spa. And I think that's the main thing. They need to be sparring a hell of a lot more than what they do. Um, then it looks just like, like the sport, what it demands of us. And they're going to be a lot more successful. But, um, you know, I'm going through a lot of different um, journeys at the moment about how I can do that. But the final thing I want to do is how do you do it safely? So mm. it's all well and good, but someone's punching you in the head. Someone's hitting you up the belly. You know, this is, these are not normal things. Mm. So how do you get the reps in whilst maintaining safety of the boxer and get lots of reps in whilst maintaining the safe one? And that's, that's I think, the big challenge for coaches, I think, at the moment. There's quite a bit to unpick in that. It's quite interesting. Um, the point about you don't have time to do that in amateur boxing because, you know, you've either got three three-minute rounds or three two-minute rounds um, or whatever it might be. Um I'm not sure that washes because I understand why people would say that because what they're saying is is that you need a little bit of time on task to be able to understand people's movement. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
their kind of movement habits, the patterns that they adopt so that you can then begin to adjust and that. But that, yes, yes, sort of in a broader, wider strategic sense. But within a minute, within a minute of work of boxing, you're going to, if you are attuned, you're going to pick up a load of things. And I would have thought uh, you're at, it's not just the, the sort of what you might call the, the macro strategy, as in I'm learning about how this person moves before I actually finished about. It's also the in the moment as well, because the reading element is, is helping you with evasion, helping you with um, timing, helping you with understanding more about the way you might need to launch your attacks or move into defensive positions or how you might defend, how you might defend in order to begin an attack. So it strikes me that there's the very, very, there's the very kind of in the moment, you know, micro opportunities, as well as the sort of wider, you know, kind of minute by minute, round by round type opportunities. Mm. It feels to me like that's what the great fighters are doing. Yeah, I think if they, you know, and if your practices and your spars have been correct rather than wars, yeah. then you've been exposed to that information a million times anyway. So, you know, it's like anything. If you threw a dab at me now, I wouldn't have to think about that. I can just block it with my backhand. You know, it's, yeah. it's that automated. So boxing has to be in that kind of psychomotive domain, you know, that kind of real, um, you know, what would you call it? Conscious, unco competent, uh, what was it? Con unconsciously competent that's the yeah. one isn't it yeah so you're not thinking about it anymore yeah exactly not thinking about it the moment you start standing there and start trying to work out trigonometry and pythagoras and what angle they're coming in you're done you know they're going to bang you and 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 you know it's like anything the password changes you got to log on to them straight away but you can't because the password keeps changing every two seconds and you can't do it so um i, I think if we are able to expose them to as many different signals signs habits whatever you want to call them reads tells all that kind of thing um then actually in that moment then it will be assigned the right part you know that kind of long-term memory where we can bang just access it very quickly and and act um so that would be my rationale for that kind of argument yeah we just need to be a little bit more um let's do the hard work and do the reps and training so when they actually go into those three two minutes that's no problem for me i'm I'm pressured for six minutes or nine minutes, no problem. I, I will react because I trust myself to react very, very quickly. And you mentioned about, um, you know, defending to, to punch as well. So you've got, the, you've got the perception part, but then you actually got to act to perceive as well, doesn't it? It is that continuous circle. So part of it as well is then when does deception come into that perception action loop, which is partly why I reached out to you, isn't it? It's like, okay, that part there, how do you actually bring deception into breaking up or sending the wrong signals or the right signals to, to create deception to, to your opponent? And that's the part that I haven't done nearly enough on or just jumped into and I would love to know more about. So your podcast um, a few weeks ago, and forgive me, I forget the gentleman's name when I, when I contacted you. Um, that's what really, really um, struck me as something that I need to look a little bit more into in, in combat sports. Yeah, it was um, Casey Wheel, wasn't it? He was talking That's about it, yeah. deceptive movements. Coach Wheel. That's the one. That's it, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting area, isn't it? And um, again, I, I actually think it's just about being intentional in your movement. So everything, it's understanding. And, and again, you know, your point about unconscious competence, I think, is an interesting one in the sense that 
you want a degree of automaticity because what you want is you don't want to have to think, you know, it's, it's like anything, isn't it? Oh, that fist's coming towards me. I must move in this way. It's, it's already happened. You're already on the floor. So you're, you're much more, you're much, much more about utilizing your, um, uh, your reflexes, I suppose. And you kind of want certain actions to become almost reflex. However, I would, and so what a lot of people believe, and the reason they do a lot of repetitive movement patterning is because they assume you want what you want is automaticity. Um, but I spoke to Keith Davids about this, and he says actually you don't want things to be automatic. You never want things to be automatic, and the reason you want them, you don't want them to be automatic, is because um, when you do things automatically, they become tells. Okay, that's an interesting point. Yeah. And so then people pick up on that and go, ah, I see what he does. When you do, when I do this, he does that. I'm going to try it again. Oh, he's doing it again. He's doing it again. Right, now I know what to do. So you don't want to be automatic. What you want to be is um, massively attuned. So they actually talk about now, like, well, Keith talks about not talking about skill acquisition, but talking about skill attunement. And you think, well, what the bloody difference is that? What does that make? Well, it does make a difference because the assumption with skill acquisition, or at least the imply implication of skill acquisition, is it's something you have, you acquire. And that sound that seems finite. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually what we're saying is skill um skill attunement is an ongoing process. It continues all the time, never stops. Every action, every training, there's always something to attune to. So actually the essence of skilled performance is about the attunement now that works in two ways so it partly works where i'm responding to your movement and trying to decipher what your movements mean so i'm interpreting your movements is that a real movement is it a fake one you know those kinds of things you're beginning to understand more about that but likewise you're utilizing your movement to get information you used the phrase earlier on, um, act to perceive, perceive to act, act, act to perceive. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm taking in information from you in order to determine action. But when I'm acting, I'm also then it's a constant site. It's a constant cycle. When I'm acting, I'm getting information from the way you respond to my action. And that can be used in a kind of an, an off a, sort of a, a straightforward offensive way to launch your offensive movements. Or it can be launched. It can be launched deceptively, in order to confer maybe a hunch that you've got about an individual being worried about a particular action, or because you want their attention to be drawn somewhere, in order for the real um, the real weapon to be unleashed somewhere else. You know. So I feel as if like deception is kind of intrinsically built into the the boxing. Um, or it should be, in my view, and it should be trained. <laughs> so I, I mean, you're, you're laughing. So I'm, I'm now, you're now suggesting to me that maybe it isn't. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So firstly, I love, I'll, I've loved the word attunement rather than acquisition. I understand that you know that you know the finiteness of acquisition. You've got it. That's it. It's stuck in your muscles or whatever you want to call it yeah. now for long-term memory. Um, a great example I'd say with that would be Nassim Hamid, Prince Nassim Hamid, who one of the most entertaining boxers that ever lived. You know, I used to love watching him. Natural born, natural born uh, thriller, I think it was his video on VHS. I used to watch at university. Um, what he had the uh, what he had the ability to do was change the shot in flight. So 
most boxers, they make a decision, they throw the punch and they double down it. They, you know, they, they cross their fingers and, you know, they hope that it's going to land. Or I'll, I'll try a one-two now. I'll try a left hook now. I'll try a body shot now, whatever it might be. And they hope it lands. But what Nassim Hamid do, you could see him do it. He'd throw a jab. And as he's throwing the jab, he might decelerate it slightly and then just turn it into like a screw shot, which is more like a 45 degree under the chin. It's not a straight shot. It's not an uppercut. And he managed to do that every single time. Um, and watching it back, the reason why I think he's able to do that is because the, um, yes, he's perceiving to act, but it's actually the act, it's the, uh, the um, as he's actually acting, he's then perceived some more information. Ah, this, this isn't, shot's not going to work. He's going to block it. And then he turns it around. And that's brilliant. So I think the same thing works for, for defences, Stu. When people commit to a defence, they are, oh, no, I know this will block it because it is somehow automated. They then commit to the defence. The greatest boxers are the ones that then can change the shot when they see the defence changing. You know, it's just yeah. like this morphological being sort of changing all the time. and It doesn't stay the same. So he was, he was really good at, um, at doing that. So, um, yeah, I think, can we be intentional in, in, in using feints, et cetera, et cetera, to do that? And um, I'm just sort of playing with a lot of ideas, mainly at Dice at the moment, about how I do that at the moment. Yeah. And perhaps um, perhaps we can share a few sort of uh, ideas with you, Stu, yeah, as to okay. ways that I've been, I've been doing that. So, um, um, okay, so one idea I had was actually, firstly, let's try and turn on the, the hardware first, all right? So, you know, this whole perceptual system needs to be kind of switched on. A lot of boxers will tell you, oh, bloody hell, I always lose the first round. I'm such a slow starter. And I'm, I'm sure that happens in a lot of sports. I'm sure it happens in hockey. You know, yeah, you have a it does. Yeah. yeah, They're not switched on. So um, I think... Because they do a, it's because they do a mindless warm-up that's just involved physical activity. No, there's no activation stuff, but they insist that it's the most important thing to do. You know, the time we always start well, and we've literally done no warm-up and just arrived because we were late on the motorway and we just have to go straight on the pitch and play. Every time, honestly, it's unbelievable. So you, your warm-up's almost made you start at negative five rather than plus five. Yeah, it like dull, yeah. No, dumbs the senses. It's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I kind of see that a lot as well. So um, uh, And lots of boxers complain about it. And I complain about it. It's like, bloody hell, I've given away that first round again. You know, it's like someone saying, yeah, I mean, it's three rounds. It's like someone saying, right, I'm going to take 33% of your salary away from you. You know, there's going to there's gonna be murders. You know what I mean? You take my 3% increase over two years off, I'm going to, there's going to be murders, no matter 33%. So um, where was I? Uh, oh, yes. Okay. So just trying to turn on the hardware slightly. And, and again, I'm sure there'll be people here that might say, this is not actually, that might not work, but let's see if it does. Um, you ever been on a, a speed awareness course? Yes, sadly. Yeah, I, I think I did a 38 and a 30 somewhere in Brighton. And uh, yeah, I got nabbed for it. So I went along to it, you know, face like thunder. Actually really enjoyed the course. Yeah. I got a lot from it, actually. Um, and the guy talked about um, commentating as you drive. So you're driving along, there's a tree on the left, there's a red car on the right, or there's a stop sign coming up, a better stop stop sign i'm well, not in america but um i don't know where that came from but uh you know there's a roundabout coming up a better slow down and you just commentate your way through it and it kind of i thought to myself surely we're sort of turning on the hardware there actually becoming a little bit more attuned to the environment i suppose so can we do that in the boxing gym so if we're if we are uh, in the ring or we've got a partner in front of us why not actually describe what the partner looks like his gloves are red um, you know, he's six foot tall, he's this, that and the other, he's, he's moving this, that, and just trying to gain a little bit of information. Whether that information is massively pertinent, I don't really know. But I'm just kind of thinking, turn the hardware on slightly. 
So yeah. kind of, um, you know, you talk about activation within the warm up, but I think we've got to activate that sort of perceptual system as well, don't we? So, um, I mean, firstly, before we move on, what, what, what would you say? What would you say to that? I'm not sure if there's massive science, scientific underpinning to that. Well, I think no, I think I think you're fine. There is, and in actual fact, it was Ivan that actually uh, you mentioned uh, Ivan Cobb, who you mentioned earlier on, who switched me on to this concept. And I know that Marianne Davis has talked about it, and I'm trying to think of the name of it. You might remember it. Um, I think, in fact, you had a session either. It was either a box gathering session or it was another session that he, no, no, he, he definitely referred to this. And I'm trying to remember what it's called. But it is that process of kind of self-talking your way through a kind of experience, usually done as a reflective practice, but actually live in, no, live in the moment. It's, it's in the moment as well. I'm trying to think what it is. Yeah, so I, there is research behind that. and I, So it's not, it's not completely um, balmy. And actually, I like the idea almost of almost being intentional about switching on the perceptual system by going through a bit of a, not going through the motions, but just getting someone to talk their way through to raise their level of awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's all it is. And, and little things as well, like just throwing beanbags to each other before you box in the changes rather than just going pad to pad. Here's a beanbag and they're like, there. So they, I think they're getting a little bit more accurate and attuned to the information that comes to them as they can narrow in a little bit. Mm. Um, not that they don't want to be too narrow. They want to still have this kind of global perception of what's going on so they can, you know, they can take that information and read what the legs are doing, not just what the, the fists are doing. Mm. Um, but I think, I think this is something in there. And I, I've noticed at DICE, when I do that, from the start, the boxes do switch on quickly. Whether I can, whether I can kind of, um, you know, uh, actually kind of score that or whether I can actually um, see that as a concrete thing I don't know but I just see that their levels rise a little bit more they're a bit more switched on and ready to go and I suppose it's something a little bit different so one one thing that we've tried recently and um, it's a kind of sparring game well not recently but before um, lockdown so one idea that we, we had and I suppose a little bit kind of Amy Pricey in some ways they're allowed to choose four shots so I'm sparring you Stu and I've spied you before, for example, and I'm thinking to myself, all right, what are the four shots that is going to make me successful against Stu Armstrong? So I might say it's a jab, it's a, it's a left hook to the head, left hook to the body, you know, um, whatever it is, yeah. But I have to kind of really think, what are the, the four shots I'm only allowed to throw? So then we start off like a, like a computer game. So we go, right, level one is, and, the, and my opponent knows this as well, um, and they've all got the same, um, he's got slightly different shots. So level one is, Okay, I've got to score the jab. And then when you score it, you have to shout score. So it just helps me, me keep the score as a coach, I suppose. And you go through that. And that's and that's fine. So at that point, I think what's happening is the opposite boxes knows kind of what's coming. And you kind of, um, you know, the, the affordances are there, but you're kind of dumbing down the information a little bit. So the constraints are there slightly because the boxer knows what's coming. It's not very covert. Um, but then as you go, as you go through it, so let's say I win, I get to four before you do. And we might play that a few times. But then we can start any order now. So it doesn't have to be the jabs first. I can throw any four, as long as I get through that four list. So now I'm sort of stretching them a little bit more. Um, there's a little bit more variability within the ring and they have to kind of tune into that. So I'm thinking in terms of perception, they have to be very, very switched on to, um, in the earlier rounds to what's going on. Because if they're not switched on early on, they're going to get caught in the later rounds. So it kind of, I think it kind of makes them a bit more intentional about tuning into the information. Um, 
And um, yeah, so they can then sort of choose the shots of the go. So it's a game. You put it under pressure by scoring it as well. I think the, um, everybody really, really um, kind of um, gets motivated by these things. They look forward to doing it and they really, really apply themselves. So that's kind of one idea that we've played around with quite a few times. I just sort of think, is it about getting there? Is that about getting them attuned to the information that they should be attuning into? So, you know, kind of let's start with a bit of a perception action coupling rather than just, right, you score this shot, off you go. See what mm. I mean? Yeah. But then you can also go for, right, now we're going to do it for a high level and say, right, now the other boxer doesn't know. It's a covert spar because now it's starting to have that kind of fidelity, isn't it? It's starting to look like, well, the other boxer wouldn't know what I'm going to look, uh, what I'm going to throw. So you may argue it's a little bit um, linear in some ways, but it, in terms of um, the progressions, um it just puts a little bit more stress on their ability to perceive before the act, I think. No, it's... It, uh, I mean, I know what you're saying when you say it's linear. It's not. In the, I know what you mean. It's linear progressions going from less com less complex to more complex. Um, but it's, it's not entirely, um, partly because I suppose you're first and foremost just utilizing that because like when you do a leveling approach like a video games approach then naturally it becomes linear because you go from simple to complex yeah. Yeah, sure. so yeah um interest so it's interesting can I build on that so I've got some yeah, thoughts sure. that I want to share uh, I want to share with you um so uh so you've got in that game but by the way love it really nice um you know and I like I like the fact that I was going to ask you actually, is there a covert version where they don't know what's coming? Um, do is who's who is the game predominantly for? As in, have both boxers got four shots and they're both sort of doing it at the same time, or is one an attacker and one a defender? Uh, they they both uh, at the same time, so they've both got the same task. Got it. So you've definitely got the back and forward, but mm -hmm. as a very as a variation, could you? Could you and would you without sacri So this point about representativeness, and you know you made the, the point earlier about um, doing it with safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, what you with when you talk about rep, um, representativeness, one of the challenges with representativeness is the only truly representative thing is the full-on fight, isn't it, in reality? Open spa, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but you can't do that too much because there's too much potential for injury, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So often what we're looking and it's the same in any sport in reality um you know an 11 aside game of hockey you don't touch the ball very much so actually you don't get much out of it therefore probably not the best version of that so what you're looking for is something that and this is the phrase that you're, you're trying to find the sweet spot of representative enough mm -hmm. yeah um so there's always some sacrifice to be made and i was just thinking there that one sort of progression downward from the four shot game might be where one individual is scoring the other individual is avoiding and gaining points for avoiding okay yeah so every shot that's so every shot that is missed that's one point and they get to four or whatever whatever number you set it up to yeah absolutely yeah so you you actually are you, you could actually access the, de, the, de, the de, not the defensive yeah it is the defensive side but it's also the evasion side so if you wanted to work on evasion you'd have one one athlete so and what I'm thinking of is the sort of constraint to afford side of things whereby it looks like the one throwing the punches is the actual one getting getting the benefit but if the session's about evasion it's the other one getting the benefit mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and they can have two different um, needs and wants to go into that spa. And then, you know, it's obviously be the skill of the coach then to put the right constraints in to help that individual mm. as you go along. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I do like that idea. I do like that idea, the, the defensive part as well. Um, and the thing that, that I think will come out from that as well, Stu, is that if you're saying, right, Stu, I'm, you're going to be defensive now, Adam, you need to score your shots, but Stu, you're going to be defensive. I then start getting annoyed because Stu keeps getting a four straight away and I'm like, bang, he misses. Oh, he's he's four-nilled me again. He's four-nilled me again. What will actually start emerging from that is the feints, the feints, the deception part, the triggers that will come out. I feel that if you are actually coaching a session about drawing, feinting, triggering, um, then it's nearly impossible to do that if there's no sort of, um, if it's not covert in some way, if that makes sense. So I yeah. say, right, okay. And I know that we're in a, a podcast now and people can't see me, but first thing I want you to do is a little foot stamp. The next thing I want you to do is just turn your shoulder and just kind of give you the hardware of how to do it. If it's not, if it's not emergent, if it doesn't come up from them actually coming up with that idea themselves, for me, I've, I've never found it really, really works at all. So, yeah, I think, and I'll give you another example. So if you're going to hit a pad, for example, so I said, here's a pad, I want you to hit that. My job is to stop you hitting that and I'm just going to swipe it away every time. Um, basically, for the first 10 shots, they don't land it because I swipe it away every time. You're not going to hit my pad, I'll just push it away. But then they start actually going faint. My swipe comes across, like the windshield wiper on a car comes across and then bang, <laughs> the fly hits the windscreen. It, it actually lands. Have I actually told them not? So it, it becomes very sort of, um, um, it becomes more, uh, what would you call it? Implicit coaching rather than that kind of explicit. I, it's just one of those things where I feel no one does it because we either, um, we, we just don't set the right environment for people to try and do that. So I suppose one way you could say it is that, you could say is that we actually teach people how to punch, but we don't actually teach them how to land a punch. Yeah. Does that make there's a big there's a big difference between the two and I think we go so tech tech heavy that it's right I'm going to teach you how to punch mate and now I expect you to land that shot Stu yeah but actually I've not taught you how to land the punch which is a big difference and that's that's exactly the differentiation about us talking what we were talking about earlier on about skill so the skill of uh, boxing is not being able to throw technically perfect punches. Because if it was that, then you'd just be graded on the on on your ability to throw technically perfect punches. You look the part, you've won. The skill of boxing is being able to throw these punches and also land them on somebody who's trying to stop you from landing them on them. Often, whilst they're also throwing punches and you're evading at the same time. So, of course, those dimensions need to be in existence. But in this case, what we might decide to do is you can reduce the amount of variability because sometimes if there's too much variability there's too much there's an information overload for the boxer and they can't you'll never see the feints emerging mm -hmm. you'll never see those sorts of things because there's they're, they're almost they're attuned to either not getting hit by the other person and getting the points so actually the reduction of variability enables the emergence of things like fakes and deception because i don't have to be fearful of the shot coming back i'm the aggressor here you actually, you make a really good point, actually, which is the individual will continuously evade because it's too obvious. What can you do differently? 
oh, I could use some different, I could maybe trick them. They might do it. You might even have to ask a question. They might just naturally do it. They might not naturally do it. So you might have to guide it or open the door or share an idea or something along those lines, show them where there might be some ideas for them to utilize. You could even ask their opponent, how come it's so easy for them for you to evade those shots? They're coming at me dead easy. I can see them coming a mile away. There's no deception. Now we see something. But your point is interesting. So, so you're going to get like a dual benefit here. The evader, um, the evader is essentially learning the eva evasive movements, trying to avoid being hit, and and attuning to the movements. The the attacker is learning to attack with more deception. Perfect storm. Absolutely. And this is, this is the beauty of co-adaptive behavior like this. And essentially, you know, you put constraints in place and the more intentional you are with your constraints, the more co-adaptation takes place. For every constraint you, you, you implement on either, you know, and let's imagine two boxes are a system, an adaptive system. So for every constraint you, you apply to one or both of them, there is some kind of reaction happening. And if you're intentional about the constraint you apply, whether it's covert or overt on the individual, you will, you will, and then observe the, this is what I think a lot of coaches don't do is they apply the constraint to one and then watch that one. The reality is when you apply a constraint to one person, in reality, you should be looking at the other person. Not always, not always, but that is something that is not very well thought, not very well done. And I have to say, I still sometimes forget about that. I'm always applying constraints to the team I want to see the change in. In reality, what I should be doing is apply constraints to this team to get a change in the others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's almost like you're, you're trying to stabilize just so you can quantify the results. That's right. Rather than um, destabilize two people and, you know, and, and, and almost observe what's coming out of that. So, you know, the skills emerge from this kind of thing. So I, I'm kind of thinking it is a bit like, um, so if you imagine the perception action loop, just yeah. going around, except in the top action at the bottom, you know, that kind of typical, you know, coming off Newell's triangle type thing. Yeah. I'm almost thinking that that perception part is um, as it goes around to from perception to action from 12 o'clock to six o'clock, there's a kind of like haywire line in there somewhere. So yeah. the line, the circle goes, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, that's you uh, triggering, that's you fainting, that's you drawing. Um, and of course, if that's a haywire line, it's taken a lot longer for the person to act. You know, it's, it's literally a longer line. You know, you're creating a lot more information to attune to, you know, and, and the same goes for the other side. So as you go from action back up to perception, you know, from six to 12, you, again, you have a haywire line drawn in there. And I just kind of, uh, I was talking to uh, Chris Porter from England Boxing about this as well, about wouldn't that be quite interesting if you put that into that perception action loop and use that as kind of your underpinning way to, to, to deliver coach education in terms of how that looks in boxing and yeah. then workshop that and get some ideas and get very, you know, get in, get in the ring and actually look at it and see what's actually the behaviors that start coming from both the boxes. Yeah. Certain come in. So that, that kind of really fascinated. And that was my real trigger to actually send you that email as to, as to talk about this. And when we, when I'm, when I was listening to, uh, to coach will so that kind of really fascinated me because i never really ever triggered or fainted or drew in my, in, in my whole boxing career over 10 years because it wasn't a it's not almost it's almost not quantifiable it's almost like a, if it's not a defense and it's not a punch then what is it well actually it's it it's that lovely space in between that's going to destable the other boxer and make them guess um one way i i, I talk to the boxers about that is um if I said, right, everybody follow me and I start clapping, 
follow my pattern, guys, follow my pattern, clap. Everybody starts following it, it's very easy. And then I go, okay, guys, now follow my pattern. And they'll smile at me and look at me and go, I couldn't follow it, Adam. I go, well, that's what you're doing when you're just throwing shots without triggering, that everyone's learned to read that pattern straight away. So it's, it's, I'm trying to find ways to actually sell it to the boxers, getting to actually understand that underpinning part of it before we then go into setting up the spar or what have you. And hopefully the skills emerge if they can go, oh, I sort of see what you mean now. So it's a real um, exploration at the moment because I think it is quite untangible in some ways. I'm trying to make it a little bit more tangible. Yeah, but uh, but uh, like you say, I mean, a lot of, a lot of this... Um... Uh, one of the benefits of working in this way is because there aren't any hard and fast answers. It's you, you're truly in an exploratory mode with the, with the boxers. Say, look, you know, we're going to work on this, work on this together. You're going to come up with something. I'm going to come up with something. We're going to, you know, we're going to sort of vibe off each other. It's all strangely enough. It's like a, a sparring contest between athlete and coach, because in many ways you're getting information and you're utilizing information to then play information back. Um, and, uh, but the interesting thing for me, I think, and this is the bit that I often think is also missed, is be because so much of skilled performance relies on uh, attunement to information present in the environment. One of the things that I don't think we train enough is, or even solicit information on from the athlete, is awareness. Where are they placing their awareness? Um, and it, it's a really fascinating um area for me as 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 i explore this a little bit more which and i'm often quite interested because very often the awareness is nowhere near where it probably ought to be so a lot of my practice is about trying to direct awareness and i'm either directing awareness using a question directing awareness using a task or a uh, using a constraint or a change in the environment or a rule system or or a you know kind of a a direct kind of change of change of the environment with the opponent or something along those lines, because it's about where is awareness being placed. And I actually think often, too often, athletes are only ever considering what their next action is going to be. Never thinking or very rarely thinking what their next action ought to be in relation to the opponent. In a team game, there's two dimensions, there's, there's, there's three dimensions, isn't there? So there's, there's me, there's me and my teammate, me and my teammate and my opponent. There's a sort mm -hmm. of three dimensions. Or there's me and my opponent and my teammate. In your world, it's straightforward. You know, it's almost like a dyad. There's me, there's my opponent. And but there's two there's there's like there's two two modes of information gathering. One is where you're soliciting information through your action. Every time you move, there's going to be information. Are they attuned to that? And the second bit is every time they move, there's information. And am I picking up on that? So you're, you're in a receipt mode and a solicitation mode. So, but I think often because people are so busy thinking about the, and this is why I think the, the drills is so dangerous. This is why I think the technique led coaching is so dangerous because it, 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 it um, teaches or attunes the athlete to only consider their action because they're actually attuned. Am I, am I, am i moving in the way i ought to move internal focus of attention, yeah. absolutely right well i mean the external focus would be more on the target wouldn't it so actually yeah. that's why i think the external focus of attention and wolf's work is so so aligned and where harjeev singh is going and those guys is so aligned to the ecological approach because it naturally takes you to the environmental information mm -hmm. 
in order to help you with the action possibility. Absolutely. And then, of course, um, we watch about the boxer loses or performs poorly. Um, so we double down on the on the, the tech and the tack, especially the tech. Uh, and then what we're encouraging is that internal focus of attention. So, so basically, I say the boxers, you're boxing with your handbrake on. You're yep. literally trying to move with your handbrake on. So where can where can your attention be externally? And one of the, the, the greatest things that, you know, boxers have ever come out with, you know, we mentioned about crap proverbs earlier, is punch through the target. So I'm actually looking, I'm not looking at your nose, I'm looking at the back of your head. I mean, I, I know that sounds harsh, but that is the, that is the, uh, that is the sport. So I, I want to be punching through the target. So I think, um, I suppose it's a little bit of that learner empathy stuff as well, about them coming up actually with those cues, with those anchors about, okay, well, what external cues can we, can you come up with that is going to make you think about being successful when you throw that shot or with that in that defense. And I think they have to be sort of, they have to be coupled in some way, don't they? So if this shot is coming, then, you know, it's, it's not about, okay, well, I need to bend my back leg and then cock my, my hip or whatever it is. Cause that's not going to, that's not going to wash. It's going to slow you down. So mm. I think if, um, if coaches can sit down and I don't do this nearly enough and actually think about these kind of anchor words, I suppose, you know, almost, I suppose almost Pavlovian, in terms of what could, what can we do externally? What's the information out there? So you're actually going to land that shot because everything you tell me, you, you're always half a second too late at the moment because you're thinking internally. But that's our fault because we double down tech and tech. Of course, it's going to be internal. So yeah, hand, the lang- handbrake the lang- on. The language of attunement, we almost need to make that part of our normal everyday lexicon, don't we? But I don't think it is. Even I would argue now, even my language is not strong enough on the attunement side. How do you mean? Well, I'm too often, I think, uh, drawing athlete attention to action possibility, their action action possibility, as mm-hmm. opposed to drawing their attention as to why they might have acted in a particular way in relation to someone else. Okay. All right. So you've got, so maybe the mistake is we've, we've almost got the finite result that we want in our heads and we're trying to coach them towards that rather than that kind of exploratory i'm trying to decondition myself from doing that because it's like 20 years of conditioning to just look at the action possibility yeah just like removing start removing your skin isn't it yeah <laughs> but it's, i think it's um you know so questions you know like um good questions like what did you notice that kind yeah. of thing does yeah. literally go what am I noticing out here? And again, I'm doing hand signals on a podcast. Thanks very much. Um, but yeah, what's out there rather than what was going on with your hip or you need to do that. And it's just, but the, the knowledge isn't, isn't there. And it's took me six or seven years to even find this information out, you know, that that's why I was slow. That's why my boxer does that. You know, these kind of little things, um, which, are, which are absolutely vital. You know, perception action doesn't get mentioned. Um, internal external focus doesn't get mentioned but we double down on the internal side of things so um, I think also the, the whole Rick Shuttleworth thing is quite interesting in, term, in terms of um, you know like safe uncertainty and all that and yeah. where does boxing actually lie if you are going to put it into any of those quadrants yeah. so you know so they always say that that top right you know that kind of safe and uncertain you're kind of destabilizing it a little bit but they, they feel they're in that psychological safe area to do it we, I think, as boxing, I've spent too much in the bottom right, which is open spa, beat the crap out of each other, yeah. um, get tough. Are there too much information? They're not attuning to it. Can you can you tell me in a, afterwards how that spa went? They don't remember a bloody thing because there is just so much information there. 
or we go the opposite way to do and we go in that top left and we do a technical spar so you go in that safe certain so i'm sparring you Stu. right Stu, i want you to throw a jab at adam adam i want you to block it with your right hand and then come back with your jab and then we we drill that over and over and over again and then all the boxers get the ass because it actually doesn't transfer and they're getting caught when it goes into the open spar so we're kind of we're top left we're bottom right but we don't spend enough in that kind of conditioned uh, constrained area in the top right for me um, and that's something I think needs to change. But boxing is is changing for the better. There's some really good people out there that are really starting to think about this sort of stuff now um, and the, the underpinning and challenging tradition as to what we're doing and why. Uh, and that's where the box gathering comes into it, I think. You know, a lot of people really do want to share these, this information and understand rather than just being, the, you know, the, the cream rhymes to the top and the, and the toughest man wins or the toughest girl wins. So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting space to be in at the moment. Brilliant. I mean, um, just something I wanted to say that's been rattling around my brain from earlier on. You mentioned uh, Prince Nassim. Uh, again, who I, I'd agree with you was just you know fantastic to watch. You know, just the the kind of the, the the ability to move and read. Something occurred to me though. I just wondered if you wanted to consider this possibility, which is, it may have been that he was leading with a jab and re- recognizing that it wasn't there, and then altering the shot according to the movement of the other way. But is it possible that he was actually using deceptive movements by deliberately starting with something that looked like a jab only to become something else? Is that also a possibility? Uh, that's a good point, actually. I didn't consider it that way. I went around one part of the loop. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Canelo, you know, he's, he's the man at the moment. What, you know, what a fighter he is. But if you watch any kind of highlight reel on there, he will look to throw an overhand right, which is basically, for people listening who don't know, that's, that's like a, a right hand that kind of loops right over the top of their hands and goes right over the top and bang. Um, in fact, that's what uh, Josh Braxy won by the other day. Um, what he does is throw that, and as it's coming over the top, they obviously reach their hands up to protect their, their um, temple. Yeah. But he's put himself in a beautiful position to throw the complete opposite shot, shot which is a left uppercut. And then he throws that in. And you look at it going, that is so, so simple, but massively effective. The guy's just completely bit on it. He's yeah. bit on it and he's opened the target. Because the bottom line is our arms, our forearms, just aren't long enough to, to, to defend the whole target area. So there's always space. So you've always got these affordances that keep opening up very dynamic within the target if you're able to influence and dictate where someone's guard goes. Um, but we just don't do it enough because it's just, like I say, it's just not concrete enough a skill and it's certainly not in the um, in the book. So I think we just need to really look at that and we'd be a lot more successful if we were a bit more intentional about how we set out a practice design for that. So, yeah, that's a really good point. I never thought of it with that side of the loop. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I was because I was wondering if there were examples of, um, I mean, the, the most famous, but it's a little bit obvious example is Sugar Ray's windmill and before doing the jab you know the, the old famous one but I, I wonder if there was there's a, I mean I, I watched a Sean Mishka tweeted something you might have seen it with Israel Adesanya from MMA talking through one of his bouts now you never know when someone talks through their bouts what whether you know with the benefit of hindsight they're just kind of making something up but he said a few things about the way he acted that I genuinely would not have noticed live or even probably if I was watching it in slow motion back where he was showing how when when an opponent launched an attack he was he was moving and countering in a 
and it was the most it was most subtle strike but so much so subtle that nobody would notice it and to the point where actually the judges would never notice it but it was really important from the perspective of um suggesting to his opponent that that attack possibility might not be that profitable going forward (laughs) and it's like again it wasn't it wasn't it was never a it was never a knockout type strike it was never a about winning strike it was mu- it was more a sort it was you you it was a strike to say here's some information for you that you that to just suggest to you something about the way you're coming at me that isn't going to work for you and it, and he i didn't get to the end of it but i'm pretty sure what he was doing was setting him up to say if you come in this way you're not going to do very well in order to get him to come somewhere else where he knew he could have the knockout strike Love that, love that. If you're going to knock on the front door, no one's going to answer. You need to go and climb in the side window. If you're going to come and rob my house, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the the thing that instantly jumped to mind when you said that, Stu, is, um, I mean, I'm six foot five. I'm, I'm, you know, you know, streak of pists. So I throw my jab and keep everyone away from me, keep them nice and long, nice and long. So people would always try and go under me. That was obviously one of the solutions: try and go under me and duck down under my shots and come up in the body and come up to the head. So um, I never worked it out as a boxer, but now as a coach, I kind of see it. So basically, I, <laughs> I'm going to say the word tell. I've gone, I've gone completely about what, I'm said, what I've been talking about now. Go a bit autocratic and say to my toolboxers, just show them your rear uppercut. Show them the rear uppercut. Because what you're actually doing there is, if you come underneath me, I'm going to hit you with that rear uppercut. So you need to find a better way to do this. And of course... If they're not going to come downstairs, they're going to stay nice and tall with me. And I win that bout every day or they win that bout every day. So I, I don't think I've, I've only done that just because I've noticed it in practice. But have I actually really used that as a kind of um, practice design and say, right, how can you get them to do what you want to do by showing them your, your intentions? Yeah. I really like that as an idea. I've never, ever thought about that. So, um, yeah, kudos. <laughs> it's, it, it's the benefit of having someone who knows very little about your sport just throwing the odd idea Absolutely. out because they don't that, you know because I, I haven't got anything to lose have i because i don't know whether anything's any good or not so i can throw the odd idea out and then you can take it away and tell me come back to me and tell me whether it was any good or it was completely mad and didn't work well we, we you know we all go down our lines up and we, we, all, we all lie on what we're, we're good at and we all go into our comfort zones and coaching and say right this works this works so i'll double down on that all again but all the while we're missing you know that kind of lateral approach to what actually will be successful or we just don't listen to our boxes and we you know we, we don't we don't ask them questions and find out what they're actually seeing and what they're experiencing because at the end of the day i'm watching from the side two people like a almost like one of the old um you know like tekken or street fighter games from the side that's what i see side to side they're seeing front on they're seeing all the information but we don't really ask them enough questions do we and then, and then we jump in and rob them of the answer. So, um, yeah, that's that's something I've made a note of that. And that's uh, the boxers are going to get that as soon as their medicals come back. They're, uh, <laughs> they're going to hit each other with that one, literally. <laughs> so um, an, an hour, we're an hour and 20 minutes in. It's absolutely flown by. Um, and I'm, I've absolutely, I genuinely really enjoy the conversation. It's been really, really interesting. Something occurred to me, though, um, that I wanted to leave you with as an idea as well, which was, you mentioned earlier about the issue of safety, which I totally get. And we've talked a bit about video games. And today I was contacted by James Stafford, who has been on the podcast previously because he's doing some really cool stuff with v- with um, VR and goalkeeper coaching uh, over in uh, in Belfast in Kathy Craig's lab. And um, they've got a thing called 
what I think it's called Incisive, I think is the name of their company. And they're using VR to train goalkeepers so that they can actually get, you know, uh, have a go at like, you know, saving free kicks and those, all the stuff they never get a chance to because they need other people to be there to be able to. So they're creating the right kind of environmental cues. This, that, the other. They've just done something with hockey goalkeepers they want me to have a little play around with, which sounds really cool. Um, but there's got to be some something to be done with VR for you guys. It's funny you say that. There is. Um, I mean, there are the games that you've got on the call. What's that thing? Oculus, I think they call Oculus, it. Oculus, yeah. First person, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, I saw two hundred pounds or three hundred pounds, and I just went, "No, you can have it." <laughs> but, um, yeah. but the, that's yeah, what the dice budget's for, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, dice budget. <laughs> <laughs> Don't lead me down that road. Oh, all right, all right. right. <laughs> people, but, <laughs> yeah, P forty five. Okay, so um, yeah, there's um, there's there's a club called Poseidon, um, which is actually at the Aegeus Bowl. Um, and Stu O'Connor and Lucy O'Connor, they're actually, she did her um, whole, um, I think it was a master's on perception action along with, with um, virtual reality. Mm. And I've tried it out. It's incredible. It is incredible. Um, and there's just so many benefits to it. And she's actually um, proving at the moment about how effective it is um, from actually using that to then going into a spot. Um, so she has like a control, I believe. So the control is um, the person doesn't use the virtual reality and the person does. And the people that are actually using the virtual reality are getting hit a lot less and landing the shots, oh. which is boxing. And of course, if you're injured, you know, so, um, you know, you still, your hand's gone again, oh, my hand's gone again, virtual reality. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's that kind of, you know, it's representative, isn't it? You know, it's brilliant. And then you've got all these different um, opponents. So, yeah, I think that is something that, that we should look into a lot more. And I know they are. Um, a lot of people will say, oh, don't all this soft stuff, but you're not going to get hit. You're not really getting hit. But I think there is a lot of benefit there. Um, but nothing actually, nothing will be substituted for actually someone having to punch you in the nose. You need to really feel that pressure. Oh, I, I get I get that. But there's it's like, um, you know, they, they say now that, you know, um, in the kind of in the world of in the world of poker, for example, which sounds very different, but is there is a similarity, um, you know, people took years and years and years and years to become masters because they needed to understand all the different hands, this, that, and the other. Whereas now, because people can play multiple tables online, they just get to play more hands. And as a result of that, they get to understand probabilities. What they don't get is the at the table gamesmanship and the pressure and the making good decisions yeah. in the moment and all that sort of stuff, which does take a lifetime to it, but they get a lot of other benefits. So it's never the thing, but it gives you other things. Yeah, and um, there's quite a lot of research going on in various labs across across the globe looking at the applications of VR um, and as a means by which to maintain a kind of a degree of representativeness. So you get, it's more about getting pictures that you otherwise would, you know, would cause you too much danger if you were to do sure. it without the kit. Safe, safe reps. Safe reps, exactly right. Safe, safe reading reps. Safe reading. There you go. I'll, 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 I'll trademark that. That's a brilliant one. Safe reading reps. Love it. Give me a quid every time you say that on the talent equation. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I really enjoyed talking to you. And I know others will want to um, chat to you as well uh, off the back of this. So what's the best way for them to get in touch? Okay. So if you want to, uh, me to bore the hell out of you as well, guys. Um, so adam at theboxgathering.co.uk. So our, our website is just type in the box gathering. You'll find it. Um, um, yeah, and, and uh, we're on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. Just the same. Just type in the box gathering, and it will uh, it will certainly come up. 
it's a great community i've been fortunate to be part of it it's a, it's a curious community it's a it's a it's a uh got a health a healthy cynicism questioning everything mm -hmm. but also an openness which is uh which i think is a really a really good thing as well so uh hey listen i really appreciate you coming on adam i really enjoyed it uh, i would love to chat to you for longer unfortunately i've got to dive off and do another call because uh, i'm packing my mondays in at the moment it's my only recording time uh, but I really appreciate the chat. I've really enjoyed it. I've actually taken away a lot of really interesting ideas that I'm going to apply to my next cricket session, would you believe? Oh, you're not going to hit people with cricket bats, are you? Uh, there'd be times when I'd be very tempted to. I, I don't mind telling you, but I wouldn't because it would get me in trouble. <laughs> Thanks very much, Stu. Appreciate Cheers, it. Mate. Appreciate your time. All, all the best. If you liked this podcast, similar content and discussions can be found at The Box Gathering. The Box Gathering is a social initiative born out of the ashes of the first lockdown in March 2020. We provide a platform where coaches, boxers, officials and boxing enthusiasts can join together online to discuss various boxing topics. It's free to join and upgrade options offer unlimited access to all our live gatherings, campfire videos and coaching resources. Join today at www.theboxgathering.co.uk.